0: Um, I was very lucky to be handed this play. And I can tell you all, uh, I know I've done a number of new plays over the time, many of them wonderful pieces, but nearly always they come with inherent problems to be solved, or they come incomplete, or they come with questions hovering over certain areas, or with rewrites, or all kinds of necessary things, because making a play, I'm a real believer in that old-fashioned phrase that a playwright is uh, a right, it's W-R-I-G-H-T, that you write a play, you make it. Michael may do scribbling, but as a director, I received a wrought play, and that's a a very rare honour. And I've read hundreds and hundreds of scripts over the years, and sometimes you get a little gem, and sometimes you get something, you go, oh, that's got a possibility. This play was such a complete and total reading success that I knew from the beginning, A, I wanted to do it passionately, which is incredibly important for me as a director, but I also knew that it was an incredibly important work to do because of its completeness, because of its very particularity, its own total internal logic and internal construction, which is exquisitely put together by Mr. West, who, yeah, here comes the flattery, but it's easy to say the truth, um, fantastically wrought. And therefore, from my point of view, it was like a, a score of music. It was absolutely clear that that's how it had to be directed, and everything is notated. And, and that's a fascinating aspect of Michael's writing ability, honed, I think, through many years of hands-on practice, with uh, particularly with his own company, or the company he's most closely associated, Corn Exchange, because most of the plays you've produced with yeah. Corn Exchange, Michael, have been wrought, haven't they? The process has not been... Simply you going away, writing a play, giving it to the company and saying, off you go. But you've actually had a lot of developmental aspects. Argument, it's called, yeah. yeah, Tell us about, just tell a little bit about the argumentative process that creates a play for you before we talk about this play.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, it goes without saying that theatre is a collaborative art form. And uh, whenever I'm talking to writers, uh, if I'm teaching playwriting, uh, whatever that is, uh, one of the things I impress upon them at the very beginning, if they don't know it already, which is, is that um, you'll be depending a lot on the kindness of strangers. Um, you don't have any control over the way your work is presented or received, and uh, there are many, many people who will ruin whatever you work on um, at every stage. And you have to turn that to your advantage and open up the door for the creative collaboration that you—that re- is the ideal. So. Um, with that as a sort of preamble, the, the work that uh, Michael is, is alluding to in, in the coin exchange the, the, their plays none of them are the same. you know every time you, you try and reinvent the wheel and it takes far too long to realize that there are simpler ways probably of doing this but um, so each project will be slightly different, but generally speaking the the premise that we start from is that Annie Ryan is the director I'm the writer, and we usually have the cast first, and what we do is we start. So from the outside in, and then weirdly, it's the exact opposite of the process that Michael is describing very flatteringly about about this play. In, in, in the collaborative work that I would do with The Corn Exchange, the script is the last thing to arrive. Um, and what happens is, Annie and I would start talking about an idea, fishing around for something. Um, uh, a play about uh, grief or loss or something like that. It, would, it could come from anything. It could be a piece of music or whatever. We think, well, we better do a show. And uh, so it starts emerging, and we start talking about what do we want to look at, what do we want to explore, um, and what's the language for, for doing that. So. Um Sort of an idea starts to emerge out of the darkness, and uh, and it really is a very free and associative process. You just kind of go with whatever you're thinking about. Don't nail anything down. And we say, well, it should feel like an. Five people say um, it should be about um, about death. It's about you know it, these things start to emerge, and then we start talking about and um, what's it like? What kind of film? What kind of music? What kind of images? What 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 things are in it? And we start sort of drawing those elements out. And who are the actors we want to work with? Um, and so that is all, they all come into the room, and then that's how the conversation starts. So we get the actors and we invite them into this chaos uh, and say, we'd like to do a play with you um, and around you. So, you know, any ideas? And, um, uh, and we talk a little bit about what we're, where we're coming from. And, and then that, that conversation begins. And, and the, the way we work is um, there is a sort of uh, shape to it, but uh, there's a devising period depending on how much money is available. Uh, at the moment, none. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's partly why I have to go back to writing plays the old way. But uh, the devising period is, again, just being in a room. And uh, we would prioritize a sort of a physical problem. Um, so for example, when we were doing Free Fall, which is a play we did a couple of years ago, one of the problems we were really looking at uh, was, um, can you eat and act at the same time? So that, you know, that's it, that's one of the kind of brainstorming things. Of, is there a, a problem we can solve? Because the worst thing you can do to actors is say, in you come, sit down there, now pretend you're on a bus, and you you know each other goodbye, and then hope that they improvise a play by mistake, and and that's not what we mean by uh, devising at all. That we never put actors under pressure to do the work of, of the piece. You give them a real problem, which is like, can you eat crisps and speak? Um, you can't. Mm-hmm. But that was really interesting. So we thought we'll, we'll definitely keep that. Um, so we, there is a crisps scene in, uh, in in Free Fall. Spaghetti, however, disgusting. <laughs> um, and uh, and but out of that, what we got was. And we were improvising nonsense, um, it, again, with no interest in, in the content of what was being said. We were interested in some technical problems. But what we got out of it was the sound effects. And we were going like, well, they're quite nice, actually. But the spaghetti is just a disgusting mess. And um, so we can move the spaghetti off, but keep the clink clink, and then move those. And that didn't work, empty plates. So we thought, well, we'll move those off as well, and they'll all be. So th- th- this is how you get the language of a place. You're going like, that's how it'll feel, that's how it'll look like. And those things begin to tell you how you write the thing. So this is probably I don't know the confessions of a deranged um, um I'm not sure exactly. But that's kind of how it goes out. So 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 we, we as I say we work from the outside in and gradually hone in on who the characters are, who they are. And the the, the parts are designed to fit the actors as closely as possible in a really interesting way, not to typecast them but but to really map around them. So in the case of Free Foy, Andrew Bennett was our central character and we knew that from the beginning. Uh, and then we had we had three of the others, so four of the five in the devising process. And we knew there were two couples. We thought they maybe we were next door. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but we were moving into dramatizing the problem of death, of how do you die at a dinner party? Um, and is there a play in that? And and we kept coming back to it and coming back to it. So after the end of uh, a bit of that time, I went away and sort of thought and did some research and thought and also, eventually I went away and wrote it. Um, then we came back and did a, a week's work on it. And that was in june i went away and rewrote it um and then we went back into rehearsal in august september and we premiered it in the theater festival so actually from sort of cradle to grave it was under 11 or 12 months which is insanely fast it, at the time it feels like you're kind of drifting along all the time but that that was what we would always argue with something like the arts council that actually our way of working it changes the way the funding works because you're paying actors early and all that sort of, But we're going like no it's really efficient like we're and we're doing two reading sessions effectively of the material. So you, the last thing you wanna do is go into the first day of rehearsal of a play with the four weeks, five weeks to, to D-Day and go, I think, the, I think it's a bit weird and I don't think the middle bit works. Like that is a nightmare. You don't have the time to fix it. So you wanna make sure you can diffuse that panic uh, by having that panic in June, for example, which we did, mm-hmm. and I was quite happy, but my God, the faces around the room um because I was thinking this is a working document so can, but we've got loads of time <laughs> so and uh, what we write first is is the idea of the wild draft, which is everything goes so um so anyway, I'm talking about that that freefall experience, which is a very particularly far out um, very strange play, um and it went that far out and then came back and came back and came back, and with something like this. It took a longer, more internal route, but a similar experience of, you know, you start from the outside in, you're starting from pulling together strands, threads, images. The central image of this play uh, came to me um, in in watching another play. It's almost like infidelity, I suppose, but I was watching the play and finding it very hard to understand. and, And then the title and these two characters came out in my sort of haze. And they had a box and they were arguing about something and I was going they didn't mention the box and I was going well what's in the box I don't know what they, what's in the box so that I came out of that play going like I've got an idea for a play but I have absolutely no idea what the idea is it's uh, something to do with conservatory and a couple and they're not talking about the box and it took me a long time for, to go like no that is the play that's it they, and we'll have to find out what's in the box so it's just a yeah, private and strange process of just sitting with it a lot and uh, rocking slowly in a chair going, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and how and how long
0: did it take for the no idea that um, mm-hmm. you had to develop into a full first draft? I mean, what was that process? Um,
1: yeah, usually when I'm asked the question of how long does it take to write a play, I say, not as long as it takes not to write a play because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of faffing and the great thing about art, I suppose, this is the redemptive power of all art, is that it makes sense of the laziness and the... Uh, and the the cowardice and the deferral and the procrastination, because you were just thinking, you didn't know it at the time. So um, that is the great hope that the daydream reveals something at the end of it. So what happened? I'd say in this case, between that first dream uh, and actually working on it, was probably about a year, and then it was about three years. Uh, but in between, I was writing other plays, and I finished it at the time I did. We did Freefall upstairs in the Abbey, and the. the if anyone can remember the horrible snow and the week the imf came to town um that was a very weird week but i finished it that week um and i finished it and that's exactly the script that we went into rehearsal with so that was a few years ago um and i that was a rare experience for me because i also i had got to that point of thinking i think it's ready now and obviously you'll change things and we'll see how it goes and stuff but but I felt like I'd I'd done that. I'd sp- I'd done a couple of drafts. I'd sat with it. I'd really bent it, twisted it, tried a couple of different things, and went, no, that's that's the shape of it.
0: So, how did we do? And then, um, <laughs> then I got involved. Yeah, and that's always um, it's always the interest. It's as I always said, the exciting moment, and um, we are, we were very delighted that the Abbey put us together yeah. um, and said, let's produce this in the Peacock. We knew instantly it was the right theater to do it in and the right environment, the right timing. And then it's about putting together the right team. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Michael says, the collaboration is absolutely essential, don't they? You know, From every single member of that team. Um, obviously, talking about first thought for me usually is a design colleague to start visualizing, imagining the process. And very quickly I knew I wanted to work with Liam Dooner on the piece. We'd done a piece before, uh, the summer before, uh, called Best Man. And uh, Liam's a tremendously um, uh, vital colleague because, again, he's someone who just says, let's ask questions. And that's what you absolutely have to do. Ask the questions. Think, what is the environment? What is the ethos? What is the, the ether, rather, of the piece? How should it look? And Michael had given an awful lot of, direction and the way he'd framed. If anyone goes away and reads the text, you'll see there's a lot of environmental information given in very small doses throughout the script. And our job was to interpret that and think, what is that world? And we knew, obviously, from talking with Michael about the background of the couple, the world they come out of, a kind of lost Anglo-Irish world, somewhere we decided, probably outside Cork, Maybe somewhere, you know, in a little small town, lost outside it, big house, rambling. We talked about that, big grounds, lonely, old trees, wind blowing. And then you start dealing with elemental senses of the darkness. And the echoes and the feeling of emptiness and the feeling of despair that comes from a life that's dripping away, that's emptying away down to these two couple in this once great house, um, living in the morning room, which of course is a wonderful double-edged. You know, it is a place of mourning, and it is a place that the sun should come in. And of course, at that moment, you start to realize, as I was reading through the script over and over, all of the fantastic doubles and hidden metaphors that Michael just plants into his text. So there's this wonderful line when uh, he, the character he, says, "You know, would you like to move into the other room? We stay here because it gets no sun. And of course, later on in the play, you know what that word really is resonating about. And it's this fantastic way that the play drip, drip, drips through your consciousness, that we knew we needed to create in a very simple space because it's so clearly... I mean, the characters don't get names. They're he and she. Darkness. Two chairs. You know, and, and thankfully, when I spoke to Michael about that, I said, I think that's how we'll do it. You could see there was a sort of sense of relief. He went, Christ, thank God. You know, there was absolutely never any question myself and Liam, but we couldn't have bookcases and you know big walls and you know, kind of knick-knacky things all over the place. We tried to spend a lot of time working on how little we could get into the space so that it was absolutely paired back to the essentials mm. and also the identity of these two extraordinary, deeply tragic, hugely flawed, monstrous, haunted beautiful people that Michael has constructed and put together. And, and therefore that process went on for quite a while developing how to do it and we knew you know, Michael sets a, a challenge as a director all the way through but obviously one of the biggest challenges or excitements for me in a strange way was the last two <laughs> words of the play because Michael wrote the piece as three scenes which is that little opening section where there's no one there then the body of the play and then this third scene in which all there is is description of darkness, shadow, noise and he in, on his own and the simple words pussy, pussy. and. Um, Quite quickly, I knew that I wanted to take the bold approach and, and delve into that time mm. space, the place where he's completely alone, has been left alone, and is in the torment of all of the terrible memories and lost opportunities, and particularly his lost son and what he could have done to have stopped that. And we wanted to represent all that chaos and all that terrible trauma in a very abstracted mm. way. So those sort of challenges were there and that then all got built into the set. So we could go on about all the other, I mean, then a fantastic team. Um, Kevin here, the wonderful lighting designer who's done such a beautiful job. You know, wonderful team, stage management, Broner. Um, Philip, there's our production manager. Philip did the sound Philip who music. Did the sound. I mean, all of these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are so important because it's not just about the quality of the artists, but it's about the collaborative nature, mm. the collegiate sort of, comradeship, the, the ability to people to meet quite quickly, bind in and yeah. focus on one purpose, which is the way we're going to do this play at this time. And and then of course, the most important element of all, two extraordinary actors mm. who I'm sure you will agree have given two of the great performances that you will see this year, um, and, and showed again Stephen and Deirdre, two of the greatest talents in Irish theater. And it's a great honor for me to have worked with them both again and I think we'll give another round of applause. <laughs> 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 okay,
1: Shall we ask if there are any,
0: any questions? Yes, are there any questions at this stage from anyone? Because mm-hmm. we can waffle on for hours. Yeah. Anybody got any questions or observations about the play? Yes.
1: The gentleman's language is uh, quite extreme and crude. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering uh, is that something that would have come literally from the writer or would that be something you would have put Not in? Not my the responsibility. The uh, <laughs> I have a very pure mind. Um, I don't know, it just seemed the way <laughs> um, uh, oh, I th- was thrilled to write um, someone like that. Absolutely a thrill. Uh, and I think, you know, He's appalling, as he says. Everyone knows that. Um, there's no, no, But it's you know part of the fun is that he's right most of the time, um, and he just says what he thinks. And uh, there's something wonderful in that. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 fruity and full on, I suppose.
0: But I think that's the authenticity. I know. Huh. I can understand the question because we know that kind of language has become kind of common garden and is used as an excuse in a lot of work now <coughs> to cover up very dull writing, thinking that somehow, you know, that kind of language is somehow making it. Cutting edge and dangerous, and actually just gets boring. But in in this piece, the explosive power and the particular honed nature of the rest of the writing, I can absolutely guarantee you, as someone who who has. Um, you know, a dislike for things that are out of place. It never once in rehearsal crossed my mind that any of them were anything other than wholly appropriate mm. to that character. And our job is to show people or characters as they are, not how we would like them to be. Not sanitised, not made safe and tame, not turned into something comfortable. And people like that... I mean, it kind of struck me tonight just watching it. You have to remember, you know, you're know, you all voyeurs. He's in his own house. The only person he's, he's effing and blinding with is his own partner. Of, 40, 45 years. She's the one who has to deal with it. Um, now, he does it outside as well, there's no doubt about it, but the safety of your own home is a very dangerous place as we know. There are many secrets behind closed doors and people are a certain way and it's a pattern that he's used to. I think it's like a. it's part of mm. his nature. He cannot help himself but be that way yeah. and that's part of, I think, his tragedy in a sense, that kind of wild you know, the thing he calls the spark, the rawness, the a bit of them that thinks that life was about yeah. grabbing it and shaking it and swearing at it and eating it and doing all kinds of things to it. And never for a moment, or not until his son dies, does he actually reflect at any level on the carnage and the damage that he does.
1: I also thought, I mean, in terms of just the, the plays about language as well, mm-hmm. the language of love, the language of loss, and... Um it was fun to explore the full range of that, and I particularly wanted to set myself the challenge of, of including a play which had the worst language you could have and the words "select vestry." <laughs> I thought that, that together <laughs> to, together they, 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 they spoke
0: <laughs> uh, volumes exactly: <laughs> Any other any questions? Just mum. I'm going to say
1: something very sacrilegious in, in terms of the play, and that was personally, I didn't like. The last scene, very much. I felt that it devalued so much of the rest, which depended on the dialogue. For me, I didn't like the, the ending, and I didn't really like the beginning. So it's the beginning, of the end, but well, the middle in the middle. Yes, you're
0: welcome to that. <laughs> um, Any other yes over that?
1: No, I was just wanting. To oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there... I just thought. Was... The, yes, there are two two people here. Sorry, and yourself at the back. They're... Did you have a dilemma at all about the the lack of forgiveness that the children had towards the, mm. the father figure? A, a bigger one was the first there part. The lack of forgiveness. Uh, there was an absence of forgiveness in Bump the children. Throat. The absence of yeah, yeah. for the father figure. Did you have, Did you feel a dilemma about that? Uh, no, I felt quite sorry for him, um, <clears throat> but it seemed. Seemed, it seemed right in, in its own way, like that was the reality that they had... That they, that's the scar tissue, I suppose, of the way in which the tragedy has affected them all. And um, people take their own different ways through that. So, uh, you know, uh, Michael's talking about this as well. I mean, it's a very strange thing. Uh, the collaborative nature is important because you have to kind of defray the emotional costs of representing terrible things, and that's the way mm-hmm. to do it, is to allow everyone their own response to it and to see what what comes out. So... uh,
0: But I think think it's a really interesting observation because it's a play that is layered with so many different characters that you never get to meet, and yet you feel you know or have a relationship to them. And the children, obviously, particularly the two girls who are referred to a number of times and who have taken such a powerful, finite, final stance against their father and their decision just to have absolutely nothing to do with him, to refuse to speak to him, or, or, or see him again. It's it's on the one hand, I think, you know, you can see it from their prism of their world as completely understandable at some level, but yes also deeply sad. Because obviously you hear in all of that the loss of relationship. And and one of the things about the play which is I think so powerful is it is it has within it the essence of how we have stripped away and lost contact with the way extended family and family is a metaphor for society and how it contains all of what he calls the great store of things that actually matter, like trust, empathy, love, you know, all the really important human, empathetic words that even within families can end up being stripped away. So that all that's left is the Michael calls it the scar tissue and the anger and the pain and the rejection. And we lose in those battles always. I mean, it's easy to see that they've lost, but obviously the children have lost, and the grandchildren. You know, he's, you know what he refers to with, with certain disdain, but a strange kind of paradoxical care. You know they have lost. Nobody's won in this terrible trauma. There is an awful lot of casualties there, and and to hear that, and the way it spreads out into all their friends and their relationships, is both. I think, extremely, obviously, distressing, but also incredibly informative about how careful we need to be about how we take care of key relationships in our lives or decisions. Like he, you know, as a character, he keeps saying, you know, you know, everyone knows I'm appalling and I'm just the way I am. But he he hasn't, it seemed, learned enough how to amend that behavior to stop being so outrageous as to allow a space in which people can come back to him.
1: Mm.
0: And that maybe is his tragic flaw. Um, and so, you know, I always think when we sit out there, isn't there by the grace of God, go I? You know, that's where we go, and we should see these warnings. Plays are often great warnings to us. Remember, this stuff is really important. Don't let it go like they have. Mm. Um, and I always think it's terribly, terribly sad that these children will not visit him.
1: Absolutely. So we we'll take, I think, maybe two go? more questions, and then this lady. So at thought the is absolutely really, really brilliant, and I thought the two actors, mm. actors were marvelous now and very well cast. Um, I think you're, you just kind of answered what I was observed amending. The, the whole tragedy was, the comedy was there through the language and through his forgetfulness and how, we, and how the, the maid dressed and she dressed and the knitting and the crosswords and all of that. But to think that there was so much in their lives at that stage and they could not sit down and talk and solve it many, many years before that. They were still acting in their own roles. Which was their own, yeah. t- their own detriment. There were holes there. They never talked about them, debated them, yes. and the cracks were there all those years, and they were left. Mm. Mm. And that's
0: the the wonderful thing that I saw from the play, actually. Yes. And the message I got. Thank you. Just uh, what you recall it, Stephen. He was so obnoxious and hordey on the song and all.
1: I thought the contrast was absolutely brilliant. You know, I
0: the way it was written, in the language,
1: I so disagree completely with that lady there. <laughs> I, I actually thought he had learned nothing by his mistakes and she got to a point where he could only know he could just, just come over my head now and I think he got across first <laughs> course class. Course class. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting that we all watched the same thing but i having possibly conflicting ideas because I think he was trying to resolve issues or yeah face issues
0: and yet, um, he was trying to be emotional and affectionate at times but then the, the rest of him went through I and mean, she was overdosing in front of him and he was oblivious to it. Mm. So mm. he was mending things but he was still in his own world That's and he right. to go that yes. far. Well that's again with the piece, it was the joy about directing it because there were, I'm always interested in opposition and I'm always interested in ambiguity and contradiction. You know, people are contradictory inherently they are wrought, they're divided within themselves, divided from each other, and that seems to be a very particular condition today that it's very hard to fight against. You know, We find it very hard to hold on to family, community, uh, similarity, we are always interested in the difference, and a play like this highlights that. But the thing that Michael gives you as a director and as an audience member is that it's all wrought through the language, and it's very rare yeah now to find a play and a writer who is still absolutely interested in the fact that language is profoundly paradoxical and completely will let you down at any moment. Mm-hmm. So this wonderful metaphor of the dictionary and the fact that they're constantly looking up words and constantly arguing over the meaning of it is a fantastic sort right. of example of our, our sort of foolishness.
1: Well, there's two, two dictionaries, his and hers. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Always <Yeah>. divided, two <laughs> volumes, you see. and And the fact that we don't understand each other. So as you say, that's the other great thing about doing a piece theatre is people will come to it and one person will, over here will see one thing, another person will, he, over here will hear and see another. And that's great because that is in a way what it should be, a space in which we're trying to, to hear between the raindrops, you know, where are the connections? And some things will touch some people and grab your attention. Other things like the character will go straight past their eyes or there is and you don't hear it And and it's a play which you absolutely have to listen to. You know, the old-fashioned saying used to be you you go, people used to say in the old days of theatre, I'm going to hear a play. They didn't say I'm going to see a play, I'm going to hear a play. Because the sound resonances and the qualities inherent in the language were what people were tuning into, and we've become very visualized. But Michael's play gives us a chance to go back to what language in the theatre gives you, which is word combat. And if you know the fantastic way in which words bounce off each other you know, and words are resonating, mm-hmm. there's deliberate repetitions and the setups of rhythms and pitches which absolutely guide you to the meat of the matter and then one of the characters will suddenly go left and lose the other one. Mm-hmm. And that's just a delight. It's like the crossword, up and down, mm-hmm. side to side.
1: Yeah. I'm very conscious of just of the time yeah, exactly. and what it is. It, yeah, Yes, yes. Michael, did you ever think at some point that from your writing to your characters that she might just get up and walk off <laughs> and um, never come back in so it's good Yeah, that. no, that, that was, again that's the, that's the time bomb, I suppose that the play is, someone's going to open the box and she's got to get off and uh, and so that was good I know, that's that's a controlled world um, and I, I again, I enjoyed the idea that, well, she's not going to go anywhere at the beginning so it's going to be enormous when she stands up is it? And uh, <laughs> And trying to, to work out that so I knew that once she gets up, you kind of know you must be near the end of the play. Um, <laughs> and there's a certain there's always a, a, a the grace notes of you know what you hope for and what you actually end up with. You know you have to you know, between Deirdre and Michael and Stephen and you know the dance of actually making sure that these things fit right and trying a few different options and um, that's just that's what rehearsals for. But yeah, that was it. So that was the time. The time bomb was she's going to get up and go, and the box will be opened. But um, <laughs> I beg Can pardon? Which of the two of them? Oh, I don't know, I love them both, dearly. <laughs> uh, I, sp- I would spend time happily with either of them. I don't think they're very good together, <laughs> but, um, but they're both good crack, I think. <laughs> um, last gentleman, just last comment. I, I, I'm sure that we've discussed here a play that was about a relationship between two individual characters. And we very once mentioned the word love, Mm. It seemed to me that mm. it was the thin thread of love oh, yeah. binding them together. Absolutely. And the fact that it was not expressed as such or, and was kept as a subtle influence mm. is one of the great aspects of the play that mm. I see it overplayed in yeah. love plays. But that's true, it's true. And uh, they are very fond of each other, even though it, they've damaged each other. Um, anyway, may I. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> See, this is where I'm very annoying. I say both. <laughs> uh, but uh, may I thank you all for, uh, for your very kind questions and comments and for staying and uh, for sharing your time with us even more. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you again.